Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name is Mike Fenton-Stevens, and I'm the host of this podcast in which I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They choose four things that they cherish and one that they want to get rid of from their life, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the writer John O'Farrell, who's done so many things that if I list them all, it'll be 20 minutes before we actually get going. So here are some pretty impressive highlights. He's won a British Comedy Award, a Gold Sony Radio Academy Award, and a Premius Ondas, or in other words, the Best Radio Show in Europe Award. With his writing partner, Mark Burton, he was the main writer on Spitting Image for 10 series. He wrote for Clive Anderson, Nick Hancock on Room 101, Head to Heads for Smith & Jones, and much of the scripted parts of Have I Got News for You. He co-wrote the book for the musical Something Rotten, for which he was nominated for a Tony, and has written the book for the new music this is Doubtfire, based on the film starring Robin Williams. He's also involved in politics. He's written for Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and several other Labour politicians. And he's written a number of best-selling books, including Things Can Only Get Better, An Utterly Impartial History of Britain, The Man Who Forgot His Wife, May Contain Nuts, I Have a Bream, There's Only Two David Beckhams and The Best A Man Can Get. He's been on Question Time, Grumpy Old Men, Have I Got News For You, Pointless Celebrities, University Challenge, and loads of other things. He even stood as a Labour candidate, and he married the scorer who sat alongside Humphrey Littleton on I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. In other words, he's married to the lovely Samantha. And now that has to be enough to make anyone want to hear what John O'Farrell would choose to put in his time capsule. So here's your chance. Have fun. Lovely. So whenever you want to kick off, Michael, you've got very dulcet tones, I must say. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Well, I, you know, okay, I'll kick off in about, well, let's, let's just sit here for 10 minutes. 
No, no. <laughs> Let's go. OK. John O'Farrell, how lovely to have you on my time capsule. Thank you very much, Michael. Delighted to be on and, and in such esteemed company. <laughs> not me. No, not you. Obviously, your other guests. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so we're going to talk about five things from your life that may seem insignificant to other people, but to you are important that you'd like to put into a time capsule to preserve them. Four things that you love and one thing that you'd be glad to get rid of. To consign to history. Yes, indeed. So uh, let's see, what's your first item? Well, um, this is not insignificant to me, and people will understand that it's not insignificant in anyone's case, but I would like to put in my mum into the time capsule. <laughs> She's not with us anymore, but mm. she just would uh, be there for everyone's entertainment. She was a very, very larger-than-life character. I think probably the only person in medical history to have a hip replacement and then ask the doctor if she could take the old bone home for the dog. (laughs) 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 And she was like, I was like, Mum, you can't do that. She goes, well, it's such a waste. Could have made a nice stock with that. (laughs) She she grew up up in the war in times of, you know, food shortages. didn't like to waste anything, so would squeeze the oil out of a tin of tuna to save the oil so that anything she fried tasted of tuna and (laughs) use stale bread to make stale toast. But um, no, yeah, mum's hip bone and country vegetable. Could be a soup. Uh, (laughs) So Joy was her name and um, she was just, you know how parents are embarrassing. She's sort of embarrassing, sort of squared. Mm. Always sort of outrageous and inappropriate. She was a quite a posh lady uh, who married a sort of working class Irishman. So that was an interesting combination. (laughs) Every summer she would clean out the garden pond just by stripping down to her knickers and doing it topless in the mud. And uh, one year my friends came round and there was Joy, aged probably, you know, however old she was. She was a large woman, my mother, uh, mm. looking like the wild women of Wonga, her breasts <laughs> covered in mud. And my friends going, oh, hi, Mrs. O'Farrell, it's John in. <laughs> and uh, it was the talk of the school, as you can imagine. Just hold my tadpoles. <laughs> yes, it was. God, bloody hell, John, your mum's knockers were enormous. It's like, I don't want to talk about that in history. No. <laughs> um, what did she do, John? She had met my dad at a thing called... Um, a World Friendship Association, which after the war brought orphaned refugees over to the UK for holidays. Oh. Then they had a cafe together in in, in Muswell Hill. And then um, she brought us up, but she got a job at the hospital in Cliveden near Maidenhead and she worked there for a bit. But she uh, became a, quite an activist. She was quite a sort of political activist. She was, um, it was that amazing combination of being left-wing and posh. So she used to drive her cooking that she did for the Greenham Peace Women. She'd mm. drive to Greenham and say, right now, so you must open these in the right order. This one's got fresh cream in. It's, a, it's got volivants. The volivants are in that one, dear. And, um, and these women in woolly hats and sort of fingerless gloves were, have this. Um, now, this is a Simon on Crute. Um, now, you're probably best steamed, but... And, and, and they've got an open fire. Yeah, exactly. They were sort of, you know, gnawing on bits of bone around the fire or whatever. Not hip bone. No, no probably not. But she um, yes, yeah, so she was very active in um, Amnesty International. She would write up the minutes. She was slightly nuts, actually. I mean, you know, um, hilarious, but nuts. She would write up the minutes for Amnesty, but always wanted to put jokes in them to make them more entertaining. And no one in, in the Cookham Village Amnesty would go, can you just write a record? 
record of the meeting. Um, she'd say to me, I spent the whole weekend trying to make them funny. I was going, Mum, there's no point. It's just the minutes of the meeting. Oh, well, I like to make it entertaining for everyone. Um, so she was fantastically... She was all in a hurry. She was getting done for speeding. She got done for speeding on the way to her speed awareness course, which I thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, she would park anywhere. You know, she's like, oh, that's the estate agent, private parking. She'd park diagonally across this space, you know, <laughs> yes. like someone from Ab Fab. <laughs> but she was a great mum because she was funny and outrageous. And I was like uh, Safi in Ab Fab, you know, mm. going, mum, you can't do that. You know, while yeah. she was rubbing the arm of the security man, going, you don't mind me going through this door that says private, do you? We'll just go through this way it's much quicker dear. so yeah so my mum I think would uh, would entertain people in the, oh yeah um, what a gift you're giving to the world yes I think so she always took her dog everywhere with her so she had a a golden retriever called Fudge and um, she'd go down <laughs> Kensington High Street and um, uh, always would think oh I'll do the shopping but I don't want to leave it tied up outside the shop so I'll put it in the bank so she went into the bank and tied the dog up inside you know the bit where you sit down and write your checks out and of course she was late and the bank closed and it's like, is this you who's bringing your dog every day? The manager was waiting outside with this golden <laughs> retriever. And, oh, I thought it like thought um, I just left it there whilst I was doing the shopping. Well, can you not? So, so then, so then she goes, oh, I've got to take it inside the shop now. So she approaches Marks and Spencers, and there's a big sign saying no dogs except guide dogs mm. so she thinks oh well i've got my swimming goggles in my handbag so she puts on her swimming goggles and <laughs> gropes her way into marks and spencers and fudge hits the slippery floor lies on her back she hates the slippery floor so she's trying to drag fudge across this apparent <laughs> guide dog trying to drag yeah. it across while lifting up her speed goggles going come on fudge come on and the manager comes across and says madam you are aware you're not allowed to have dogs in. Oh, I thought guide dogs were accepted. <laughs> Madam, you're wearing swimming goggles. <laughs> this, is, this is my childhood, you know, regular occurrences in my childhood. So, uh, yes. Well, how brilliant, though, that you absolutely didn't reject her way of life. Yeah. You're going to be so embarrassed, like a lot of boys would be. Yes. So, but you probably were. But uh, I was but, embarrassed, yes. But you I still mean, saw the wonder of it. Well, I do remember we went on a CND demo one time. Um, and there was supposed to be a mass die-in. And so we all lay down in Kensington Church Street for, for the, when the sort of siren sound went off to show what a Holocaust would be like. We all had to lie on the ground, you see. <laughs> and um, her hairdresser popped out of his shop to look at us all. And she went, hello, Julian! Hello, Julian! <laughs> and he's going, Mom, shut up! Sort of class war <laughs> eyeing me suspiciously. Coming in for a cut and set on Thursday. On Thursday, Julian. Oh, I've got you down for a demi-perm, Joy. <laughs> and, uh, so, yes, you would always embarrass me, of course. And, you know, uh, one time on my... Um, friends were around and she just came back and she said, oh, I've just bought a vibrator. Then like, <laughs> she hadn't bought a vibrator. She'd bought one of those belly massaging machines, you know, a belt yes. that goes around your tummy and vibrates. And all my friends are going, oh, Farrell's mum's bought a vibrator. And it wasn't a vibrator. <laughs> and then I remember at my uh, uncle's funeral, we were, she's always late, as I said, always in a hurry. She says, why is this traffic so slow? So she sort of overtakes this line of cars it was a, going slowly, and it was a line of cars because it was the funeral cortege. <laughs> so she was now cars coming the other way. She had to cut in between the hearse oh, and no. the black. She said, "Oh, sorry, sorry." <laughs> was it your uncle? It was my uncle. She was cutting in between the hearse and the widow. <laughs> I was so 
sorry. I just wanted to get into park. Get into park. So, <laughs> so this is yeah. Bless her. God bless her. Joy O'Farrell, knee white, was a you know a great source of uh, entertainment for all of us. And um, if she was to uh, be in your time capsule, mm. people could be entertained for centuries to come. Yes, how brilliant! <laughs> I'm definitely going to put her in. Thank That's you. It. I mean, and I'm going to be the first to open it. Oh well, yes, yes. She'd probably um, have it redecorated and spend a lot of money having it done, and then say, "Don't <laughs> tell your father. I don't want him to see the wallpaper before it goes up." <laughs> so it'd be a cup of tea being made for the dog, and all the all the chocolates would be missing from the lower tier in the chocolate box. <laughs> oh, what a brilliant thing to put That's in! That's my opener. That's my opener, Michael. It's a fantastic thing. That's item number one, I, and I can see where you where you come from, having put that oh, in. Oh, that's interesting. You might yeah. ask, why do you hold those views, John? Yes, I suppose so. Why so political? Yes. Well, my dad was political as well, but he was political in a sort of read the new statesman way, you know, knows who the Minister of Defence for Procurement was. <laughs> uh, she's political in the sense that she was outside campaigning, writing letters to dictators about imprisoned prisoners for amnesty. And my dad one time was like, uh, combined his method of politics with hers because she gave us both tins to shake for Amnesty International outside mm. the shop. He went to the pub in Cookham High Street and sat there with a bag of change, having a pint, putting 5p pieces in the tin, <laughs> filling it up with his own money so he could just go to the pub. Very sensible. That's the way to be an activist. That sorts the world out. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so that's item number one. So what's your second item, John? Uh, my second item, Michael, is my manual typewriter. Uh, so this is a, an old silver reed that my friends at university bought me for my 21st birthday. They all clubbed together. And it was like my friends saying, John, be a writer. Brilliant. You, we think you could make it. We think you could make a living out of, you know, the, the silly things you scribble down in bits of pen and pencil and paper. Here's a proper typewriter. Go on, mate, give it a go. <laughs> and um, so now this thing is framed in my office. It's in a glass case. It really has been put in a time capsule. <laughs> and uh, my wife got it framed and it looks beautiful up there, really. But uh, it's uh, it was a, at the time, it was like a sort of vote of confidence from my peers mm. that maybe I, ha- maybe I had something. So when did you start writing, do you think? At, at school, I started to put stuff in the had stuff in the school magazine. I wrote some mm-hmm. funny stuff for that. At university, I didn't really. I did a drama and English degree at uh, Exeter, but I didn't really do much comedy there. It was quite a serious course, quite a serious crowd I was in with. So yeah, I did start writing for the university magazine, and I started to write this regular piece. And it was I realised I could sort of write to order rather than waiting for inspiration to strike me. If you know what I mean. Mm. So I did try want to do stand up and stuff. I sort of uh, uh, entered a talent competition at Jongleurs and won that. Arthur Smith was the judge, and I, so I did a few gigs around London. Then I had one terrible gig. And that sort of knocked my confidence. And then I started to go to radio for open meetings for weekending. And that was the way in for all the comedy writers back then. Absolutely, yes. So when would that be, about mid-80s? 86, 87. Right. I started to go along to... uh, So I've been out of university three years, been working on building sites, driving jobs, not quite sure what to do with myself. But at the beginning of 87, so I remember talking to my wife about this the other day because it was snowing, I remember, and weekending, we should explain to your listeners, used to have this policy of an open door where you could walk in off the streets with your plastic carrier bag and your grubby anorak and sit there at a meeting for uncommissioned writers and suggest ideas for sketches to the producer. Mm. That was a huge sort of open door thing where you could get the sense of the programme and hear which ideas of yours were the most likely. And the list of people who walked yeah. into those meetings is oh, extraordinary, isn't it? I remember Punt and Dennis doing it. Yeah, well, they were sort of just ahead of me. And then, yeah. you know, in the history of comedy writing, it's 
artists, everyone from Richard Curtis to Guy Jenkins and Andy Hamilton and you know, everyone who wrote anything really tried that route. So I remember on Christmas 87, uh, no, um, January 87, it had been really heavy snow, which is why I was thinking about it. And I was really ill and I was lying in bed, but I'd sent something in and it was the opening sketch on that week's weekending. I was lying in bed at <laughs> half past 11 and I was just so chuffed to get something on the air. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. And um, by... March, April, I was getting stuff on every week. And then I teamed up with a chap I knew met there called Mark Burton. Mm-hmm. And we um, we started to write as a partnership and we got commissioned three minutes a week. So that we whatever happened, we were paid. And that was like my job then. I was a comedy writer. Yeah. And uh, by the end of the summer, I had met Jackie, who was a production assistant, a broadcast assistant there. <laughs> and um, by Christmas, we were going out. So I mean, that year, I got my commission. I found my future wife. And yeah. uh, that was a transformative. I was 25 years old. And then, Michael, then I tried to write a sitcom with Mark and I. We tried to write a radio sitcom. We were asked by one of the producers, would I write a sitcom? And that starred... I'm trying to think, what happened to him, that bloke? What was his name? I don't name? know, but I, uh, from what I understand, you had a really fantastic star lined up for it. <laughs> oh, yeah. He dropped out. And then you were lumbered with this young, inexperienced idiot. Listeners, we're talking about Michael Fenton Stevens, <laughs> the star and, of Radio the descri- No, the description is true. <laughs> I remember thinking, my God, why have I been chosen to do this? I was, uh, I was very chuffed. Oh, good. Yeah, we had a great cast. Do you know who the original casting was? Well, I, yes, I was, it was called McCarthy. The new, wasn't it? Yes, and it was supposed to be McLean, isn't it? Don, Mac- Don McLean, Don McLean, not the singer Don McLean. No, that would have been interesting, not him singing Vincent every week, but that would have been, <laughs> been odd. Starry, starry night. Oh, the new, um, <laughs> no, for some reason, uh, this producer wanted to put a show starring Don McLean from Cracker Jack, who wasn't even a very big star, but they wanted to put him in a sitcom, they came to us. We were green and very new writers. We're anything, anything. Yeah. Yeah. So we wrote this idea up and they, the group of bosses at BBC light entertainment radio decided this was a great idea for a sitcom, but they weren't interested in him at all. <laughs> so obviously if you think about, you know, who's the next down the list of does the cruise ships used to be on Crackerjack, <laughs> next one down the list was Michael Fenton Stevens. That's me. Yes. <laughs> so Michael, what, what, what are your memories of doing that? My memories are that, I mean, it's unusual at that age. You feel you can do anything, but I do remember that being one of the first times that I felt the pressure of, in a way, playing the lead in it. I'd always played sort of funny characters in everybody else's things. And and suddenly I had to carry the story. That's what I remember about it. And the pressure of doing that, I've never worked so hard on a script in my life. Oh, that's great to hear. Well, you were very good, may I say. You were very good. And uh, dare I say it was not bad, but I think we were slightly hampered by the the BBC ticket unit. Can I say something about that, Michael? (laughs) The radio (laughs) ticket unit. They signed the Official Secrets Act. And if any show was going to be on, they were sworn not to get anyone there at all it's yes. like you could have put on the beatles reunion and if the bbc ticket unit had been in charge of distributing the tickets no one would be interested in that no one would have been there there no. was like they say oh we sent out some tickets to some dead people yes <laughs> and, and that was the audience quite often wasn't it that was the audience it was there they had their <laughs> lists of people who came so it was usually sometimes two rows of people wasn't it in the theater. but it was absolutely crammed with very funny jokes i oh, thought it was I mean, a good they were quite good those scripts i mean dare i say it we were new and keen and, but well, they had proper stories and twists and yeah. great characters. Yeah. Uh, so Denise Coffey. It had heart. It had heart. Denise Coffey, do you remember her? She was in it. Mm, yeah. John right. Glover was in it. And in the first pilot, I think Hugh Paddock was yes, in it, which who goes, who goes way back to radio history. I mean, so you can imagine turning up to that 
from me, you know, this young yeah, man yeah. just starting in radio. Denise Coffey, she was um, Do Not Adjust Your Set. Yes. With David Jason and the Pythons. Yes. You know, so, I mean, I, I went, oh, my God. I was nervous. <laughs> the premise, for anyone who's interested, was that Michael was a Londoner and suddenly inherits this Scottish castle up in the Highlands with all the servants. And, he, you know, he goes up there to try and sort of mend the plumbing and save it. But it was quite, <laughs> it was quite sort of um, surreal, wasn't it, at times? Yeah, yeah. It was quite silly. It was. And my, when Father Ted came out... I thought, oh, that's what Mackay the New should have been. If you ah, know what I mean. It should yeah. have been, I mean, Father Ted was obviously brilliant and ours mm. was quite flawed and we were quite new, but it had that sort of, A, it had the Scottish character thing, but it also had a slight surrealness to it. And a, Indeed. Know, yeah. So, yeah, so that radio route was fantastic. And what a joy to go to the Paris Theatre, go to the captain's cabin afterwards for a pint. And you don't realise when you're doing those things that that's your part of some sort of golden age that will end. Because mm. now the Paris Theatre is no more, the captain's cabin's been demolished. Yep. And here we are on Looks Familiar on Radio 2, talking about the old days, Michael. <laughs> you remember yes. old, old Binky Burton? Yes, he went <laughs> off to Hollywood and wrote animated films. <laughs> so, yeah, so basically that, that manual typewriter led to, I would use it to talk about, you know, going through writing for radio, then writing for TV. Mm. Mark and I wrote for Weekending, then we wrote for Spitting Image, which was great. We were there when Thatcher left and we had to sort of define John Major. I understand that they always credit you with uh, with coming up with the idea of John Major being grey. Yes, it feels like a very obvious idea, but at the time it was like to say that one all the other puppets were in colour and John Major was in black and white was my idea. And I thought it would need some special camera. I thought it was going to be this expensive technological thing. And Bill Dare, the producer, went, oh, it's a one-sketch idea. It's a one-sketch idea. But, <laughs> uh, but they painted him grey, and it just worked. It wasn't high technology. They just painted him grey, and it looked hilarious in the context of the colourful show. So I do take credit for that. And uh, that was a, to be writing sort of half the show every week, the sort of core mm. of us, three or four of us writers, writing half that show every week for like 10 series was an incredible Baptism of a fire. My major memory of Spitting Image at that time was that Philip Pope, who was the musical director, we got a phone call saying, he said, we're going to have to do um, Every Breath You Take, we're going to have to re-record it because wow. they want to use it at the end of the series. And we were all prepared to record it. And then at the last minute, Sting got in touch <laughs> and said, I'll do it. <laughs> we were very disappointed. That's hilarious. Oh, so did you not get to meet Sting or anything? No, he was in Paris. Oh, okay. He did it in Paris and then biked wow. the tape over. Wow, that's amazing. Isn't that incredible? I got to meet Sting a couple of years ago when I was, yeah. well, I skipped forward in my writing career and I was writing a Broadway musical and um, it got nominated for a Tony Award or several, 10 Tony Awards actually, but uh, the, I got nominated for a Tony Award for the book and he was at the Tony nominees breakfast because he'd been nominated and he'd been to see our show the night before so I went over and started chatting to him and I said oh and I did I worked at Spin Image as well and he went oh wow I did that song I said I know I know you did uh, Every Breath Uh You Take and then someone tapped me on the shoulder and said John you got to do your group photo so I was able to say sorry Sting mate I'm busy I've got to go brilliant but uh, yeah so my, my manual typewriter is in there because it guided me towards Spitting Image have I got news for you we wrote a sitcom, Mark and I wrote a TV sitcom, not as successful as we had hoped. Peter Principal. The Peter Principal, yes, with Jim Broadbent. Jim Broadbent. I know. 
it's old fashioned, really. We're looking back at trying to do a 40 Towers and we should have been looking forward and trying to do something like The Office, really. Oh, that's interesting. Paul Mayhew Archer said something very similar. He oh, said okay. that he, he wrote a series set in an office that he thought was very funny and it was very funny. Yes. And then just after that, The Office came out. Yes. And he thought, that's what I should have written. I felt like the Polish cavalry in 1939 going, we have the best cavalry in the. <laughs> it, look at this cavalry. Look how good the horses are. And then seeing the Luftwaffe fly overhead and going, okay, okay, maybe I need to rethink. <laughs> (laughs) think this a bit but yeah so at one time we um in series two in the middle of the series they shifted it to a graveyard slot late after news night or something that was like the okay this is officially a flop i got a phone call at hattrick that next day going uh hello my name is jan from belgium i'm journalist we love your show (laughs) i was like pete is this you who is this Stuart? who is having a laugh no really i am belgian journalist your show is so funny why is your show so funny come on very funny i know we've been moved but this guy genuinely was a massive fan from belgium and the show was huge in belgium they loved it over there and uh, but to have this bloke i thought winding me up i thought it was my brother but no Jan from Belgium, thank you for having faith with it. Well, I liked it. Thank you. But then, you know, who wouldn't like a sitcom with Jim Broadbent in it? I know, I know. Well, actually, the, the experience of it doing it was so stressful and so sort of disappointing that when I had an idea for a book uh, in 97 and it went so well and it got to number one, I just thought, well, this is great. So I started writing books and I saw Mark and I sort of separated, our, went our own ways at that point. Yeah. And he carried on writing animation because we'd done some work on the film Chicken Run mm-hmm. and he carried on writing stuff at Ardman, and I carried on writing books. And so then I had about a decade and a half just writing books all the time. Again, with my manual typewriter staring down at me from the wall. So you'd moved to computers by then? I moved to computers, but can you imagine when they had manual typewriters saying, what this needs is a, a TV screen on top with a billion <laughs> channels. So when you're writing, the distractions will be infinite. Yes. Infinite. So then I went from yeah writing books, and then eventually I went to writing um musicals that's the thing i'm doing at the moment but you know it's been um each step of it it's just been great to have those fresh chances to do something different to try things out in a new genre i should imagine you've got your mum just in front of you saying come along john come along come you along can do that john oh he's marvelous he's very talented yeah when i stood for parliament because i stood for parliament after the success of my political book the following <laughs> election i thought oh, i'm going to stand for, go back to my hometown in maidenhead and stand for parliament i know i can't win i was a tory seat the MP there is Theresa May. No one's heard of her. Nothing will happen with her. <laughs> but I stood it. And then my mum, I was on a radio phoning with Theresa May. Mm. And my mum rings up. She rings up and goes, I agree with John O'Farrell. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what was your name, caller? Mrs. O'Farrell's Joy. Joy from Maidenhead. <laughs> uh, she's always very supportive of me all the way through. So on election day, she took the tannoy and it was like, vote for my son, vote for John. The car going around the town with Labour posters all over it. <laughs> She passed the microphone to my old dad, who was a bit confused by this long, bendy cord and this handset, and he just went, hello? The voters of Maidenhead were treated to the vision of uh, this car going through the town going, no, darling, it's not a telephone. Tell them to vote for John. (laughs) Don't fucking tell me what to do, woman. (laughs) And I lost. Can you believe it? I can't believe it. It's incredible, isn't it? I would have voted immediately. (laughs) She was always very proud for me and um, came along to recordings, you know. And my my dad came along to a Have I Got News For You recording. Mm. And I was chatting with Ian Histop. I introduced him to Ian Histop. And he said, oh, John, have you told Ian Histop that you write jokes for Gordon Brown? It's like, uh, no, Dad, no, no. Uh, if the Chancellor wants me to keep something secret, I tend not to tell the editor of Private Eye. It's just a little little suspicion I have. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, John. <laughs> yeah, uh, brilliant. Yes. So there was this time I was, because I was a political person and writing political bits in The Guardian, or I had a column in The Guardian for four years, I used to get bung up by Gordon Brown for 
writing jokes. He'd do it at the last minute and go, uh, hi, John, John, I'm just going into the Scottish Trade Union Conference. Got any good Scottish Trade Union jokes? <laughs> and uh, Oh, I've got a massive pile here, Gordon. Unused Scottish Trade Union jokes. So yeah, let me just, um, let me just dig one out. <laughs> but one time I was writing on Have I Got News For You, Mark and I, and Angus hadn't wanted any of the uh, lines we'd written. So it was on a story that was in the papers that week. But Gordon Brown was just about to do questions in the House of Commons and said, have you got any jokes about this William Hague story? I said, I have actually. So we faxed them over. It was faxes back then. And we had the TV on in the corner of the Have I Got News For You production office. And Angus sat there going, but Gordon Brown, the Chancellor's just doing those jokes you just gave me. <laughs> it was like, well, you didn't want them, Angus. So we came to the Chancellor's Exchequer. <laughs> It was completely surreal. Brilliant. <laughs> but so, yes. Okay, John, I'm going to take your typewriter. Okay, your lovely you. typewriter off the wall. Excellent. And it goes into a time capsule. So what's number three? Okay, it's time for a short break. We'll be back for more from John O'Farrell in a moment. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back from the ad break, or in some cases, a pointless silence. Let's find out what the third thing is that John O'Farrell would like to put in his time capsule. Number three is an abstract concept, Michael. It's suppressed laughter. <laughs> so... Laughter when you're not allowed to laugh. You, so do you know what I mean by that, don't you? <laughs> I do, yes. I somehow really miss. If you think about school and all those situations where you are supposed to be really serious and you get the giggles. And when I was in my teens, that was like the, that was my daily bread and butter. You know, it's like yeah. things being really funny when you're not allowed to laugh. And I, the best example I can give is we had this uh, sixth form private study room when I was 16, 17, 18. And it was absolute serious. We had a teacher uh, monitoring it and you were supposed to study because you're grown ups now, you're in the sixth form. You're supposed <laughs> to write and do your homework in this silent study space. You're going to university next year. It's not all jokes then, you know, so sit in silence. But this study room was next door to the boys' toilets. So I used to go across, I used to walk through. This is how sophisticated my humour is, Michael. I remember going across and going to the wall, just going, 
puts his hand in it, and it's like so immature. I was 17, and I'd go in, and my friends were like red and shaking with laughter. And I would sit down completely deadpan. I'd walk back in, because as you walk back in, the teacher would look up, and I'd just completely deadpan, sit down. And they were shaking with laughter, and all of my other mates mm. were as well. And I remember thinking, God, when I'm grown up, I'm going to think this is so immature. And I won't think this is funny at all. But I still think it's funny. I still think <laughs> the noise of this coming through. But it was the fact that they weren't allowed to laugh, which is what made it so funny. And, of course, you'd mastered deadpan. Yeah, I suppose that was it. It was just walking in with a straight face. Like, no, no it wasn't me. I don't know who that could have been. No, nothing to do with me. <laughs> no, I had a similar experience in a theatre in Rouen. Oh, no. The mayor of Rouen got up from the front row and went to the toilets, which ran down the side of the theatre. Oh, my God. And we heard that sound <laughs> genuinely. The, the mayor's <laughs> toiletries and the French. <laughs> on stage and of course we then experience exactly oh, what exactly about. i mean well i think that's probably the only time in my adult life when it's still applied so i was in a play once because i did a bit of child acting and i did a play where uh, i was in this dreadful old sort of 1930s british empire sort of play called where the rainbow ends and i was playing young crispian and then we had a dragon king <laughs> we had a, the dragon king flew in above us and um but the production at the Kenton Theatre Henley had been... Oh, no, it was a fulcrum theatre, I think, in Slough. Oh, uh, what a shame. The Kenton Theatre Henley is where I did my first professional job. Ah, oh, well, I did... I performed there as well. We did, uh, we, we did uh. stuff there. But this in this play, they hadn't practised the flying properly so he had this support <laughs> up between his legs and it hadn't been fixed properly and he just swung in above us it was absolutely crushing his <laughs> testicles they couldn't know how to get him down to the ground and while i was trying to say my lines this bloke was swinging above me back and forth just going <laughs> fuck, fuck, clutching, going, oh, he was in agony and that thing of trying to keep going and trying to be serious and ignore what's going on there's nothing funnier no. so when i went back to my school i went back and did the speech day and the two sick formers the head boy and the deputy head boy had to give the sort of welcome but they got the giggles when the headmaster was talking and to see them standing in front of a thousand people with their <laughs> shoulders shaking red and i thought oh that's such a great feeling isn't it it's such a, a thing you look back on with such fondness yeah and you don't really get it when you're grown up and you're allowed to do whatever you whatever you want it's sort of not something that features in my life anymore suppressed laughter what not even in the world of politics well i don't know i suppose yes there were times because I was such a sort of Mickey Mouse candidate anyway, because I was having doing it for a laugh. <laughs> I was standing against Theresa May for a laugh. Um, that even when someone said something mad, like we had one um, member of the public stand up and say, well, the big debate in 2001 was what should be the wording of the referendum on the euro? Because, you know, Labour had said, if we go into the euro, there'll be a referendum on it. Can you believe that's where we were? And this man stood up and said, I think the only fair wording would be, do you want to surrender your country to the Germans? And uh, <laughs> but the point was, I just laughed openly at that. It wasn't suppressed laughter. It was like, you're nuts, mate. And yet, and yet, and what, yet yes, everybody believed it. Yes, him. and madness came to pass. <laughs> the only time I can think of in adult life is when you have children and something they don't understand and you can't say anything. So my little daughter, Lily, was uh, used to write, leave notes for the fairies and I used to have to write these replies to the fairies in the garden. I'd put these letters in curly pink writing, but I started to get a bit bored with this, so I started to improvise a bit. And uh, so she showed the letters to uh, family friends, and uh, she'd say, look, and where do the fairies live, Lily? They live at Lakeside Thurrock. <laughs> They're moving soon to Blue Water. And, uh, and my friends, family friends, were all sort of, can't say, oh, God, what has John put in the letters about them? And they've all got the slightly sexual sort of undertones, all these notes, you know. Yes. Um, <laughs> my grandson, the other day, uh, he's got a thing called Skylander, and you have to name the characters in it. 
And my son was talking to him and said, what are you going to call this one? He said, I, I think I'll call it Job. <laughs> okay. He said, oh, Job, it's not going where you think it's going. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> but it's close. Yes. He said to him, just Job. He went, all right then, um, um, Knob Job. <laughs> oh, my God. Knob Job. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. It could have been worse. Yeah. It could have been yes. worse. Yes, one time my daughter was in, uh, when she was about five, I think, we went to a family christening in a church and uh, she was really bored and lay on her back at the between the pews, you know. And uh, the vicar said, and Jesus himself, of course, attended uh, a christening uh, in Galilee. And my daughter's voice just went out really loudly. Yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh. and, then, and then you saw all the people in church, their shoulders start to shake. and it's like, Of course, yeah, what they uh, all yeah, wanted that's to say. What they, that's what they oh, want, the yeah. license of being young. Yes. My brother, when my dad's boss was coming for dinner, he was completely bored. And they thought, Pat is going to say something about this. So we better warn him that he's very sensitive about the fact he's bored and he'd be upset mm. if you said, why haven't you got any hair? So don't say anything. So the man walks in and my six-year-old brother just goes, you've got a lot of hair. <laughs> you've got lots and lots of hair. Shut up, Pat. It's so obvious we've said something. <laughs> well, it's a lovely thing, uncontrollable laughter. Or, you know, that suppressing laughter is really the joy of it, oh, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. It is that sort of... And you look back at it and you think fondly of... Um, really signifies a period in your life when you are realising what a bunch of idiots are in charge, but they're still in charge, mm. and so... Uh, you could get yeah, in trouble. Yeah. But uh, so, yes, yeah, so just looking at those sick formers when I was doing that speech day, I thought, oh, you lucky guys. Nothing will be as funny again. No, it's true. <laughs> no, you have the licence to laugh and all you'll do is judge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it goes dear. into the time capsule then, John. Good, good. Suppressed laughter. Yes. Can I do my thing I'd lock away now? Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Okay, well, this is um, something, again, from my youth, I suppose, but I would like to put in my time capsule and lock it away is French exchanges. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was always being sent off to some bloody family in France to um, improve my spoken French. My mum was trying to learn French herself. My sister had married a French guy, so we were a Francophile family. Mm. But, oh, God, I had some terrible times. And so I don't know why I didn't object that I had to go for three weeks to stay with Christophe Bonamy and he'd come straight back with me for three weeks. I oh. did not like this guy at all. We camped on a building site with his mum, who was quite poor. And uh, when their car broke, she goes, John, you've got to pay half. And I'm like 15. I'm not going to go, oh, is this the deal that I pay towards <laughs> your car repairs? Um, <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so we camped on this building site. My dad always said, being Irish, he always said, camping, contrived poverty. That's all it is, contrived poverty. So I had this uh, I had this three weeks with this French boy who was so xenophobic, really, and so anti-British. So I spent the whole time saying, no, Shakespeare's not French. He was always like, <laughs> and uh, he was really anti-British. And so I'm not particularly patriotic or, you know, uh, someone who sort of beats the drum for uh, Merry England. But I had to sort of felt I had to keep correcting him on things. He did this, um, oh my God, sorry, Michael, I've just seen that my... Um, low battery i didn't put a plug in so we might take a pause there and run and get my cable is that all right okay yeah, sorry sure. sorry yeah. now go back right. and no, no, up, don't worry. No, just take a grab yourself a glass of water and i'll be back in two minutes okay great all sorry. right see you in a second he's back i thought a full battery would be enough but obviously it's burning up all sorts of things there we are Right. So, yes, yeah, sorry about that. We were talking about my French exchange. Mm. So 
this French lad that uh, I was stuck with, Christophe, I thought, well, what can I do to try and be sort of um, generous and uh, get a good conversation going? I said, Ooh. oh, let's slag off the Americans. That's a good one. <laughs> French hate the Americans. He goes, yes, well, I think the, uh, the reason that French people don't like Americans is because before America was the most powerful country in the world, it was France. And I'm going, right, right. I mean, I don't really care about, you know, who was most powerful, but it was the Brits. Okay, it was us. Because, I mean, in a negative way, British Empire, not a good thing. But our bad empire was much bigger than your bad empire. And he's going, oh, how can you say that? All of Northern Africa was a French empire. I'm going, it's all desert, mate. It's all desert. Who was that? <laughs> we had India, we had Australia, Canada, New Zealand, half of Africa, and these Union Jack tattoos are popping up on my arm and <laughs> Land of Hope and Glory is playing behind. And I'm thinking, why am I getting into this argument? Whose empire was biggest with this bloke? He's turned me into a bloody UKIP member. It didn't yeah. exist back then. So yes, I found myself always on the defensive about being English and um, him always uh, criticising Britain, which I didn't like. So you spent uh, three weeks camping on a building site with his mum, paying for their car to be fixed, and then you had to bring him home to your parents... For three weeks in Cornwall, we went to Cornwall, we, and, and uh, I just didn't like the bloke. He was provided with a fantastic holiday. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he had water skiing and all sorts, you know, and he didn't make any, he didn't speak any uh, English. I was doing all of this, I was trying to defend the British Empire in a second language, which is not, <laughs> not a very British way of doing things at all, I might add. No. Yes, my mum kept sending me off on these things. I never had the sort of gumption to go, do you know what, I'd rather not. So I was thinking mm. it was a good thing. I thought it would be good to get good at French. And I must say, my spoken French did get quite good. But then I, um, so I went to this other family. I went to school. They were quite a nice kids. I liked the kids more. The bell would go in the middle of their double lesson and they'd all go into the corridor outside the lesson when they were like 15 and smoke. It's like, oh, smoking break in class. (laughs) 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 But there were massive family rows at home. And while I was there, the mother, not a thing you should normally do as a host, but the mother tried to commit suicide. So I learned that suicide is a reflexive verb, which I wouldn't have known otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) The ambulance came up the drive, and I was in the sort of uh, basement garage bit, the bedroom I was in, and the the ambulance man said, uh, where's the victim or whatever they would have said, the patient. And I pointed upwards and went, en bas, which means down below. And they went, oh, Oh, we, 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 oh, pomba, oh. And it's like, they're looking at me like I'm a complete idiot. I'm going... <laughs> Even in the middle of an emergency, <laughs> the French felt it important to correct your language. Yes, 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 yes. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, so then I, and so I was always getting into these sort of um, scrapes. My mum would just send me off. My brother did French exchanges. Yeah. I, I never went on one at all. But he had a French exchange student over and uh, he'd said to my brother, I'd like to meet Diana Rigg. He obviously okay. thought, we're going to London, can we meet Diana Rigg? And he was a big fan of the Avengers. Yeah. So my brother told my dad this, and my dad rang up the theatre where Diana Rigg was wow. performing, uh, pretended to be a friend of her agent, and arranged wow. for my brother to go and meet them. God, how amazing your dad did that. I know. Was she cool? She was. She she had them in the dressing room and, well, oh, had them in the dressing no, room. No, well, maybe, maybe she did. Maybe that's the French again. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but uh, my brother has photographs of him at about oh, 15 God. with this French bloke meeting oh, Diana Rigg. That's hilarious. How lovely of her. Oh, that is great. Yeah, that's a jolly experience. That was a jolly experience. Yeah. Another time I went sailing with a French family, which it sounds great. I went across the Bear Biscay, but it was all the old blokes. They were always in the nude, and I was like 16. I was <laughs> nude French blokes, their willies wiggling about. <laughs> and um, sailing down to Cadiz. And then I was supposed to fly back to England, 
but there's a French tra- air traffic control strike. And so I had to <laughs> make my own way back by train across Europe. I'd spent all my money getting the ticket to Paris. And then I got to the border with Spain and really found out that my ticket had only taken me for the Spanish bit. So I was on my own with no money, borrowed some money off a Canadian bloke who I'd never, only just met. How old were you, John? I was 16. Got what? to Paris, got on the train to my French brother-in-law's house. The train divided. I was on the wrong half. Oh, no. And um, I was walking around in France at night, 16, going, what the hell am I doing? This is ridiculous. Why am I being subjected to this? And... Um, in the end, somebody just took me in. I said, I asked for the police station. These young blokes said, oh, you don't want to go to them. And they just gave me a bed for the night and let me ring some uh, French relations. And um, But, you know, this is the things that parents should send their kids off to do back then. There was no yeah. way of contacting my mum or... And I remember ringing, trying to... Doing my O-level French, trying to do director inquiries to try and to try and find the number and saying, c'est basico, c'est dans l'oise. Ça n'existe pas, monsieur, ça n'existe pas. It's just, I've been there. It's like, <laughs> so yeah. Um, oh, terrifying. At the end of it all, at the end of it all, I failed my French A level. So, <laughs> so what a waste of time that all was. Ah, uh, the reflexive yeah, yeah. verb. Ah, uh, see, I, I forgot it was a reflexive verb. So, yes, French exchanges, a thing of the past. Let's keep it that way. Absolutely. We should bury it right at the bottom of the time capsule and you'll never have to worry about it again. Good. Thank you, Michael. You're very welcome. Okay, we've got one final item. What is it, John? Well, I started with a generation above with my mum. I thought I'd end with a generation below. Uh, I have just been in lockdown for a year nearly with my daughter and her boyfriend. She's 25. I have an older son as well. He's in North London. But my daughter, Lily, and the, the, the item that I'm going to put in the capsule, just as a indicator of what it's like, is her box of sex toys that she said that she'd lost. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> as a dad, you don't really want your daughter to go, I can't find that box of sex toys I got sent. <laughs> dad, will you help me look for them? It's like, really? Is that, is that my job? The thing is, I'm quite good at finding things. When people lose their keys or whatever, I always... And so I should add that she didn't go and buy these. She was sent these by some company. She does a funny online cartoon account called Vulgar Drawings. And um, her and her boyfriend got interviewed by the sex toy company, Love Honey, for a podcast. So she, the two of them were like these stars of this podcast. They got mm. sent a box of sex toys, which she lost in the house. So I'm going... <laughs> <laughs> uh, she goes, well, it's a, oh, it's a sex toy. Yeah, you know, vibrators, cock rings, that sort of thing. I don't want to think about that, Lily. You're still this little girl who went to brownies, as far as I'm concerned. So um, she's basically, my daughter accidentally seems to have been Chaucer's wife of Bath. She's like mm. vulgar. She burps, she farts, she swears a lot. And we're all going, where did this little angelic child go? You know, um, but she has kept us entertained the entire time during lockdown and has always been someone who's uh, sort of um, been very funny, which is great. I remember one time we we're stuck in a queue. It was going to be something of an hour. And she, I said, should we not do this? And she immediately started going, would you rather sleep with Anne Whittacombe? Uh, and it's like marry Shag Avoid or whatever. And uh, kept us entertained nonstop. So, yeah. um, Well, it seems uh, to me that the women in your life Yes. They've brought all the humour into your world. It's marvelous. Well, true. And my Jackie, my wife, is someone I met in the radio comedy. Mm. She worked on the stage with uh, Humphrey Littleton on Sorry, I Haven't a Clue. She was a broadcast assistant. So basically yeah. she was Samantha. Yes. She was the lovely Samantha because she was there blushing when they were doing all those rude jokes. So, yes, yeah, so comedy has been uh, – and she worked for, in comedy for, for quite a few years. And But now my wife and I have been locked down with a couple of young people for a year. So mm. we're learning about the way that – I think David Attenborough should do a programme on the migration of mugs. 
to the bedrooms. It's like, here, here we see 100,000 mugs gathered in one place. Every shelf, <laughs> corner and desktop is a home to another mug. These, these, these mugs return to the same spot every day when John carries them all out again. You know, cleaning, washing up, things are left to soak. I keep saying to my daughter, leaving to soak is not a thing. You know, if you fry up, if you do a fry up, wash it up. Oh, it's soaking. It's just oil in there. Oil, does, oil and water don't mix. That's the whole point. So I'm very, she's very good, but it drives you crazy. And things like this morning, I was cleaning the floor, kitchen the floor. Before I did this podcast with you, I thought, oh, I'll just quickly do that kitchen floor. And I came mm. down there and went, oh no, what's happened? <laughs> what's happened? And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, no, this is, this is something that has to be done every now and then, cleaning the floor. The great thing is that she is uh, funny. So she's got this, yeah, as I say, mm. she's doing this uh, uh, vulgar drawings. So we talk about comedy and we talk about yeah. uh, scripts. So that's actually got me through lockdown is having them around. And has it sort of slightly re-inspired you? Yeah, it is. It's, yeah. it's like they keep me on my toes in terms of uh, I run ideas past them, run jokes past them, and mm. they do the same with me. But having a rude and inappropriate daughter is just taking me back to where we started this podcast with my rude and inappropriate mother. And uh, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, her grandmother in Lily, I think, and... Um, when she was about 14, I remember we were, I was involved in the elections here in Clapham and it was when the BNP were coming through. And um, I came out of Clapham Common Tube and somebody had put graffiti on posters around the wall saying, stop the racist BNP. And then they put up posters. And I thought, wow, someone's been busy. And I got into my house and her and her friends were just using my printer and these cartridges and they were producing these handmade posters. And I was so proud. I went, oh my God, that's my daughter. She's mm. turned into this young political activist. Her friends, black and white from her local school, have put these posters all around Clapham saying, use your vote, stop the racist BMP. And, I, you, you know, your children accidentally pick up on your values and what you think is important. And she used all my bloody ink that day, the little cow but uh, i forgive her that all my paper had gone and all of my ink had gone because you know i'd never thought she was particularly political she thought mussolini was a type of pasta uh, <laughs> <laughs> genuinely but uh, god bless her she's turned into a funny and um deeply sort of um political young feminist who's uh changing their world with funny cartoons so I'm very proud of her. Fantastic. So there we go. That's it. We'll put her into the time capsule. It's really lovely, John. And that's a time capsule, I think, that when anybody opens it, they'll be entertained. I hope so. John, thank you so much. It's been really, really lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Michael. We'll see if the uh, television adaptation of Akai the New is getting any closer to commissioning. Uh, we've not heard <laughs> back from them for 30 years now, so I don't know. I can play his granddad. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> lovely to talk to you, Michael. Thanks for having me on the show. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, John O'Farrell. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on the podcast provider of your choice. You can then rate the show, which is really useful to us, so do take a second to click on the stars, preferably five. In some cases, you'll get the chance to become a reviewer by writing and posting a short review, which, again, we really appreciate. You can follow My Time Capsule and me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and you can stream or download the theme tune on Spotify. It was written by Pass the Peas Music, and that fact alone makes it worth doing, surely. I mean, imagine, hey, this is groovy, who's it by, dude? Yeah, I should imagine some of your friends are weird enough to talk like that, but then you get the chance to say, what? this little old thing <laughs> it's by Pastor Peas music it's like really dope man 
or something like that. Episode 116 of My Time Capsule has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. Next week, episode 117. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 